Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very honored to have you here today. Okay, today's episode is a republished interview I did a few years back with the author Howard Axelrod. And in his context, a few years ago, I was, I was doing semi-regular interviews for Robert Wright's platform, meaningoflife.tv. And, um, and there's a few uh, of those conversations in the archives that never made it onto my own podcast. And over the next several months, I'm going to be republishing several of them. Um, Howie's interview today is, is the first of those throwback episodes. And in, in episodes to come, I have um, actually a, a great list of, of prominent uh, spiritual teachers um, that I'm looking forward to sharing with you from, from those archives. But today's conversation is with Howard Axelrod, and I came to know Howie uh, through my friendship with the pianist Aaron Goldberg. So the piano that you're hearing in the intro music here, that's Aaron Goldberg. And when Aaron was an undergraduate at Harvard, he and Howie became really good friends. And um, But during, as you'll, as you'll hear in this conversation, during Howie's junior year, I believe, he had a really tragic accident during a pickup game of basketball. And that accident changed the course of his life. One of the things that it uh, inspired him to do to make sense of uh, the trauma he endured was that he uh, rented a cabin in northern Vermont and lived in solitude for ultimately two years. And I met Howie shortly after he came back from that time in the woods. And as you'll hear in the, in the conversation, I, I just found him to have a un, uh, just an incredibly deep quality of presence. There was something in his being, the way he listened, the way he looked at you, that was unlike anything I had really experienced from any other human. And, and, and I had already at that time been working with a number of fairly serious meditation teachers but there was something very special about Howie's presence. And uh, he ultimately, as you'll hear, put, put that experience in the woods into a memoir called The Point of Vanishing, um, which is really a, a, just a beautiful book. I've recommended it to many friends. Terry gave it as a Christmas gift one year to every, all the teachers in her studio. And by and large, the feedback on this book has been extremely positive from a wide variety of readers. To share one endorsement from a high-profile figure, Bill McKibben, the great environmental activist, Bill McKibben said, this is a very real book in bone-on-bone contact with the actual world. It made me think about my own life in new ways, and I think it will do the same for you. And again, uh, the reason I'm, one of the reasons I'm bringing this out is that this book had really well, as I was reading it, shaped the way I felt about my own life and my own experience in, in the natural world in a, in a very interesting and positive way. So on one level, I encourage you to, if you like this conversation, do consider picking up a copy of The Point of Vanishing. But the second reason I'm releasing Howie's conversation now is that in the online practice community or sangha that Terry and I are facilitating, we're going to be integrating a, uh, a visiting guest teacher slot in our in our programming. So on the first, maybe on the first Monday of every month, on the Dharma night, there will be a guest teacher presenting on some aspect of either their own work or you know, their own uh, understanding or perspective on the Dharma. And this will help bring a more a, a, a multiplicity of voices to the to the conversation we have in, in the sangha. And one of the practices that I've been exploring in my own uh, ongoing practice is the practice of writing, both journaling and letter writing. And this is uh, these are practices that I'm going to be integrating into and suggesting people work with in the Sangha um, as we go forward. But uh, I will be bringing Howie in uh, a couple times a year to sort of give us some reflections, give us some input, give us some prompts for how to explore 
and develop writing in our life as a way of connecting with ourselves and helping facilitate greater uh, connection and engagement with the world around us. So he's going to be a visiting faculty member in the in the online sangha. So I'm just saying that if you're in, if you listen to this conversation, you you find him compelling, you might then consider uh, checking out the sangha to see if you'd like to join, or uh, just stay tuned when 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 the Howie night comes up on on in the in the sangha programming, you anybody can join those those events as a drop in. Um, and there'll be other teachers coming through as well. So you can you don't have to necessarily join to to partake of these specific events. And so I hope you consider one participating in one form or another. In another few months, I think I'll be having Howie on the show for another conversation about his more recent book called The Stars in Our Pockets. But for now, without further ado, I bring you Howard Axelrod and the point of vanishing. introduce us. Howard Axelrod, uh, professor of creative writing at Loyola University in Chicago. And about 15 years ago, approximately, you spent roughly two years living in solitude in northern Vermont. And uh, lucky for all of us, you survived. And (laughs) you've gone on to write an interesting book about that experience called The Point of Vanishing, a memoir of two years in solitude. So um, you're a real live hermit of sorts, or you were a real live hermit. Um, now you're a real live professor. <laughs> right. I'm a real life former hermit. Former, former hermit. Is that, that's a, probably a fairly small subset of hermits. I don't know. We don't have annual meetings. So it's, it's, that's not, <laughs> so you can imagine attendance probably wouldn't be so good. Yeah. So, I, so I really don't know how large of a subset that is or a set super set um yeah we'll try to leave off hermit jokes for net for a little while here um so i want to talk to you about the, the 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 um the experience you had up there and 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 get into what life has been like for you after and um what that what kind of impact that experience had on you as a person um and maybe to start out uh to begin with a question around your background um as a boy growing up were you like was this on your bucket list from the very beginning like were you like part of the the young Appalachian Mountain Club pioneers or a Cub Scout group and like reading Walt uh, Whitman and Thoreau and listening to Cat Stevens and just dreaming of being miles from nowhere was that part of your youth not so much although I will confess I did like Cat Stevens when I was when I was in high school, but that that was maybe the exception. Uh, I was not a member of Boy Scouts. I didn't go on a lot of hikes as a kid. My family didn't do much camping. I read Thoreau in high school, but probably reacted him to the way, similar to the way a lot of high school students do react to Thoreau, which is this guy's kind of out of date and he's interesting here and there. I like what he says about never having met anyone who's taught him anything. He he he, he works well with teenagers for that reason, I think, but. Um, no, I was not. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston in Brookline, and I, I just liked playing sports a lot, and I uh, did my schoolwork, had friends. Uh, I was not um, voted most likely to be a hermit or anything like that. Uh, I did at summer camp. I really liked going on hikes, and I liked being in the woods, but I wasn't a junior naturalist or an entomologist, or I wasn't collecting bugs or... Um, nothing I think would have stood out to anyone as a sign that I was headed towards the woods. Certainly no sign headed, uh, there was no sign for myself that suggested that. Okay. So what, what events led up to conspiring you to go to the woods? Well, I I think a big moment, a kind of before and after moment in my life, a a real turning point. And I mentioned this in the book is when I was a junior in college, uh, about a week before the end of junior year, before finals, I was playing a pickup basketball game in the gym and uh, there was a, a loose ball boy's finger went into my right eye uh, and it, it severed my optic nerve, which is the nerve behind your eye, the cable that connects your eye to your brain. Um, and so I lost vision in my right eye and that, that had a remarkable um, 
impact, which was which didn't sort of all happen at once. I mean, the blindness obviously happened immediately, but the ramifications of that blindness um, kind of became clear to me over time. I mean, the immediate ramifications were loss of peripheral vision on my right side, loss of depth perception. But then there are all the things that come along with just a loss of orientation in the world, my sense of how safe I was, then also my sense of um, reality. Because physically, literally, my my vision had changed. Um, My sense of the solidity of objects changed a little bit. My sense of knowing where things were in space changed with that depth perception. And those changes to my outer eye and to my outer vision brought up over time all kinds of questions about my inner eye. What was shaping the way I saw? What was shaping how I thought? Uh, What structures influenced the way I saw and the way I thought? And was there a way to sort of get beneath all of those constructions, social constructions, um, sort of constructions of ways of thinking, structures of thought? Was there a way to make those visible to myself and sort of to get below them? And that's, that's really why I went to the woods. Um, so you see this, this, I mean, I should pause for a second and just say that uh, for listeners who have, have ever fantasized of wanting to go to the woods, your book is a, is a great taste of what that's like. But if anyone's ever wondered what it's like to have a finger almost dislodge their eye completely and, and cause one eye to go blind, it's also a, a harrowing account of that ordeal. Um, and you identify that moment as the disruption that kind of jarred you off the course of your trajectory that you were on. Yeah, I mean, I think we all have, to use a uh, metaphor that is I guess, highly technological, we all have default settings. We just have ways of operating in the world, assumptions that we don't even know are there. Uh, and that moment, you know, I think any kind of traumatic moment, any kind of big moment in a life is, is bound to disrupt as you said, it's bound to disrupt your default settings, mm-hmm. make them clear to you, and then to make you question um, whether you need different default settings or sort of what, what settings, how are you going to adjust to life after that kind of moment, and how are you going to find new settings that make you feel, I don't know, make you feel solid in the world, make you, make you feel as though you sort of know, know where you stand. So what I'm wondering about is, you know, I can imagine somebody having this kind of traumatic incident this disruption and almost scrambling to just get back to normalcy like Mm. to get the bus back on the road kind of but this this kind of undid you in in a not like a you didn't fall apart mentally it didn't seem from reading the book but it it led to this this more dramatic decision to go away well actually my response i agree with you that sometimes the impulse afterwards is to scramble towards getting the um, everything back on track. Uh, and, and I had that response also. I had both responses. Mm. So I went back to college about 10 days after the accident. I took my exams for junior year. Senior year, I went back. I, I did all the classes. I graduated. I wrote a thesis, uh, not incidentally on Invisible Man, which he talks a lot about the inner eye, you know, and what enables us to see each other or not see each other how racism is really a function. I mean, this stuff gets into a lot of social commentary questions too. It's not just philosophical. It's not just epistemological. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what do we see in others? Why do we see it? What prevents us from seeing each other? So yeah, that, I mean, at the time I didn't, I don't think I put all that together, but that was my, my thesis was on an invisible man. And that prologue talks a great deal about inner eye and vision and what, you know, what enables vision. But so anyway, that's a long way of saying I, my impulse was to get things as back on track as I could, but at the same time, I also had a contradictory impulse, which was to search, you know, to discover sort of what, um, a new way of seeing really, sort of what, what could I trust and, and, uh, and how could I get down to what was shaping the way I saw the world. So outwardly, I, I think I continued more or less the way I had before, mm-hmm. Um, perhaps also significant is that outwardly my right eye, after all the blood and the swelling went away for quite a while, looked the exact same as my left. So outwardly to friends and to people at school, I looked the same as I had before. I was able to maintain that appearance, but inwardly I felt very different, disoriented, uh, questions that had always been there, you know, that I think any 20 or 21 year old has what's important. What do I value? How should I live? What should I orient by? all those questions became a lot more immediate. Um, 
even more physical, you know, on a daily basis. So, um, so I had both responses and then just as the years went on. So those, you know, I said there was sort of a gestation period to the changes that happened after the accident. As those years went on, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, those two responses, the outer response of being exactly the same and succeeding and writing an honors thesis and all that. And the inner response, which was all these questions trying to figure this stuff out, those two things kept diverging mm. until I couldn't straddle the two anymore. I was, it was, it was too hard. Um, William James talks about this, a lot of varieties of religious experience. Whenever someone has that kind of divide between their inner and their outer life, eventually it precipitates a crisis. And that's what led me to the woods was that feeling that I couldn't navigate. I couldn't maintain, um, that outer life with as so divided from my inner life. So I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't need to have an outer life. And before we get to the woods, um, what was it specifically about going to the woods itself that was the uh, that was the decision you came to, rather than say going to more formal thing like people ordain as monks in monasteries and uh, things like that? Like, what was it about that form of it, of, of exploration or adventure? Yeah, well, I, I really didn't want to be a part of any social construction. I, it wasn't that I was seeking out solitude per se it's that i was just looking for an absence of any other kind of construction of meaning because i wasn't sure what i could trust so so the idea was to go to to be in the natural world as divorced as possible i mean i knew that the way i thought was still going to be a product of everything i'd ever learned and ever saw and ever saw there's no way to eradicate and, and language i was still going to have language mm-hmm when I did think, and that, of course, was, is a, you know, it's not as though you can sort of burn down the history of the world inside of yourself. And, and it's not as though I really wanted to. It wasn't as though I was trying to go entirely to, to zero. I mean, it's not possible and probably wouldn't be healthy anyway. But as much as I could and as much as did seem healthy to me and sort of uh, manageable to me, that's what I wanted to do. So, so to join up with some group or some sort of um, structured version of solitude or of reflection wasn't that wasn't going to serve my needs. Got it. So you you found a place in northern Vermont, the Northeast Kingdom, mm-hmm. and before we uh, you know get into what your experience, what you did up there, um, I think most people, and this is at least the way it is for me. If I imagine going away to a cabin in the woods for a, a month or two or even a year, I think okay, I'm going to bring like remembrance of things past with me. I'm going to finally read all of Tolstoy. I'm going to bring a stack of journals and write the great American novel. Um, those kinds of artistic or personal projects that have been sort of sitting on the back burner. I'm going to really tackle them in this time and, and yeah. use my time. Well, um, that was not your approach at all. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> What was your day to What was your day to day in the woods like? What were you going there to, and what did you do? Right. So, the, so the idea was less to produce something the way you're saying, or to to sort of be adding things to your life as you're describing, than to be to be letting things go, to sort of be sloughing off all of these um, masks that I'd worn, you know, to sort of uh, play the roles that I was supposed to play sloughing off all of um, sort of all the received wisdom or received ideas that I had just accumulated or had bought into. So it was, it was, it was the, the idea was just to let as much sort of sift away as possible and try to, to try to get down to something underneath. Mr. Sort of what's at the bottom of all of those layers. So on a daily basis that meant. Was that, was that a full, did that you fully come to that yourself? I mean, that's because it was like, was there any model that you were following on, on how to do this? No model. No. Yeah. No model, no instruction. manual. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it was, and I'm not even sure how conscious that was. Like at the time, as I was going in, if someone had said, listen, just to get, you know, to get onto this mud road, there's a little gate and there's a guy in a little gate or in a booth by the little gate. And he's going to ask you for a statement of purpose. And you're just going to have to answer him. I don't, I don't know how I would have articulated it then. And if I could have, I, I don't know if I would have said it that cleanly, but that's very much how it felt. Um, so, it, you know, it was equally 
it, it was partially escape for sure, but it was equally search. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the search was. How can you get down to what's underneath all of those layers? Um, and so, yeah, so on a daily basis, what that meant was um, just going very slowly and make, waking up to, at, at dawn, usually because it was very cold in, in the house, having to put wood in the wood stove, make the fire again, drink some tea. But again, just doing it without really having anything else on my mind. You know, it's not as though I had to get to an appointment or get to a job. or So it was, it's, that's a real luxury to want, you know, to have your days structured or unstructured to the degree where you feel comfortable slowing down like that. Um, and then mostly I just go for walks. I, I had, I had snowshoes and I'd walk up into the trees around the house. And, and as I walked, I was paying attention to what was around me. And then I guess also paying attention to how I paid attention. So noticing what happened if I was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, um, how much less you see and hear if you're thinking about something. So then I would just wait until I wasn't thinking about anything because there was no rush. And then, and then I would start walking again. Uh, and so it was just, I was sort of trying to become attuned to, um, Were you walking at normal pace? Were you uh, like uh, slow walking? Uh, probably both. Yeah. Well, no, probably pretty slowly. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to get anywhere and it wasn't for exercise. It's not as though I had a Fitbit or something. <laughs> keeping track of my daily mileage. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot to look at. It was, it was really beautiful in these woods, especially after the snow. And then, uh, you know, the way the light would hit snow or if a bird um, left from a branch, the way the snow would filter down through the sunlight. And, um, and also just listening to the birds, learning how to see. There were chickadees there, black-capped chickadees. Um, but in the snow, it's pretty hard to see them because... They're white and gray. They're a little, little black, but if they're, they're in the trees, it can be very hard to find them. You hear them singing. So, so then learning how to, you know, I guess what birders know, you don't look specifically to where you hear that sound. You let your eyes go sort of soft and you just wait for motion. So you're sort of seeing not just one little branch on one tree, you're seeing the trees uh, and then you see motion and then you can find the bird. Um, and that, I guess, you know, maybe that's sort of an analog for what I was trying to do is learning how to see more, uh, seeing larger motions rather than just f- larger patterns, rather than just finding one little thing here and there. So that that's what I was doing on those walks. And those lot walks would go on for hours? A couple hours. Yeah, I guess a couple hours. Uh, come back. You know, so I would do that in the morning. Then maybe come back, have a little lunch make some more tea, put some more wood in the wood stove, maybe take a nap because I, because it was such a, such a tiring morning <laughs> and then go do it again in the afternoon. And then it would get dark. It got dark very early <clears throat> in, in the winter there. I was so far North. So I go to bed not too long after, after, um, it, it grew dark. Um, to, in some ways this sounds to me a little bit like, um, of form, you know, your, your own informal way of coming to what might be called a mindfulness practice of observing and connecting to your natural environment. You're out walking and looking at things as you're describing. Um, when you started the, your time in the woods, did you find there was a break in period? Um, like was there an adjustment period for you to get set, settled into it? Because um, I'm just thinking that this is St. Patrick's Day that we're recording. It's not the day that it's going on live. But um, I'm remembering a time 20 years ago when I was a student in Ireland and someone over there, uh, over a uh, spring holiday had given me a key to a cottage in West Cork for a week. And, you know, this was part of my fantasy of like, oh, I want to go and like be by myself in a, in some sort of cottage setting, setting and really connect and commune with the things that are essential. Right. And I turned up at that cottage, burned through three books in two days, um, and hightailed it out of there just because there was, I, I can't even really remember what it was. It wasn't necessarily the sound of the wind that drew me crazy or the, the random knocks on the door, but just, not my not rubbing against any sort of social contact 
you know, whether it was strangers or friends, um, brought up a kind of like anxiety yeah. of like, did I, was I even going to exist? <laughs> and if I stayed at, if, would I, would I, would I go crazy in a way? Like if I stayed too long in this. So did you, did you go through any of that? Did you have any kind of like periods of extreme doubt in the beginning or vacillation around whether this was the right, good idea? Right. Well, I had the advantage of having had a kind of training camp or preseason or preparation uh, because for two years before I went to the woods, I was spending a lot of time um, out west alone. I, I, I would teach in the fall. I was a teaching fellow at Harvard uh, for the two years before I, I went to the woods, but that was only a one semester gig. And so then each, each year after the teaching ended, I got in my car with my tent and my sleeping bag and just drove west. And the first year I spent a lot of time in New Mexico. I lived in New Mexico and then I was in Arizona. And the second time uh, I went up living in a trailer in Idaho, right on the Idaho-Wyoming border near the Grand Tetons. Mm -hmm. And then also lived in a cabin in Montana for a month, which may sound a lot like the Unabomber, but <laughs> I did not meet him. <laughs> Uh, no interactions with the Unabomber. And I was in Washington State for a while. So I had spent a lot of time in solitude and in different kind of lonely rural outposts before... Before we went Major League. Before I went pro, yeah, before I went Major League to keep with the sports metaphor. So it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't as though I went from hailing a cab downtown one day to just living in the woods. Mm -hmm. Next, there was a real run-up and a kind of inner preparation i guess but that said there's still there there still was a kind of acclimation period I, I think the first week or so i just felt so happy to be there it was so beautiful it was the fall when i moved in there were apples on the apple trees there were pears on the pear trees i just spent a lot of time barefoot and eating breakfast in the, the meadow with the trees and it was such a relief really to be there and feel as though i could breathe out uh, and i didn't have to be searching anymore for a place where i could do that i felt as though this is it you know, all these travels that I've been on, all this sort of searching, if it's not going to happen here, whatever I'm looking for, it's not going to happen anywhere. Right. This is it. This is the last chance you get. You're not going to, where are you, you going to go now? It was sort of running out of states in the United States to go to, unless I was going to go to some cottage in Ireland. I, I kind of knew like this, this, this was it. So at least there was that. It was kind of like, I finally come to the place where I can have this search go as deep as it needs to go. Um, so there was that relief, but then in the, maybe the week after that, yeah, things, it starts to, the, the question starts to settle and what have I done? Great. So I found this is the place where I can, um, carry on this, this search or this, this, this need that I have, but you know, what is that going to entail? How deep is this going to get? How hard is it going to get? And, and really, it's, I guess this goes with your question. What if I don't ever make it back? You know, what if I can't make it back out? Um, and there's a part in the book where that comes up. Uh, my brother called, he, once in a while I would get a telephone call, and this was a call from my brother, my older brother, and he had read Into the Wild, which I had not yet heard of. Chris uh, McCandless was that, the story about Chris, John Krakauer's story about Chris McCandless? Yeah, who goes to Alaska and goes to live in the woods. Um, and his what he did was far more extreme than what I did, uh, and who, who can't who doesn't make it back. And, and so that, that was part of that conversation with my brother. And then the question I had was, you know, what if the road in, because in that book, part of why he can't get out is the, the river that he crossed floods in the spring. Um, and so he can't get back out the way he came in. And for me, that seemed, it seemed like an, there was no river that I had crossed literally, but it did seem like a, an appropriate uh, analog for, you know, for that, just that question, what if the road that leads in doesn't lead back out? And what if, and so that, those questions, you know, two or three weeks in, they start to, you start to wonder just what am I, what have I gotten myself into? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, those questions, they, they linger, but they go more to the back. And then I was just doing what I was, what I was doing. So as I'm listening to you, I'm imagining a week of this sounds really good. A month sounds even pretty good. But a year plus another year, two years. Yeah. I just have to sit with that for a second. Two years of 
slowly getting up in the morning, making a cup of tea, lighting a fire, going for a long winter walk or woods walk. Yeah. Looking at the chickadees and the snails. Right. (laughs) And that, you know, when you attack on that amount of time to it, part of me feels like I, I'd be worried about missing out on some of my life. Um, like this is, you did this before FOMO fear of missing out became a sort of an acronym and a thing, but did you have, did you experience that at all? Right. Thank God I did it before FOMO. (laughs) Otherwise, who knows if I would have been two weeks in the woods. (laughs) That's right. Um, you know, you're, I think you're really, you're right to emphasize the time because I think that's something that, that gets lost fairly easily, especially in a culture where we don't, we understand time in short little bursts and not in long periods. And, and so much changes over that kind of period of time. I mean, really what I was experiencing was a, a, a going down, a deepening of, um, I guess, perceptual layers I mean, or something. You know, sort of the, the way I perceive time really changed, the way uh, my memory worked really changed, the way my senses worked. And all of that stuff takes a great deal of time. It's not something you can experience without without time. Um, so, so that, that that was a very important part of it. In, ter- in terms of your question about fear of missing out, was I missing out on my life for those two years? Or yeah, I suppose I was. I mean, I was twenty. It was between the ages of twenty five and twenty seven. So during those years, friends are establishing themselves in careers, establishing relationships getting married, some even having kids. I mean, there is, it's not as though that time is, is refundable in some way or that um, there's not, a, you know, a certain kind of loss or a tra- there, there was. That, that absolutely happened. And in those years, it's very hard also after those, if, if you were to, t- you know, to come back at 27 uh, to then find your way into a career again or relationships again. I mean, that, that actually, that is, I want to talk, I definitely want to talk about the integration back. Cause I'm, I'm very interested in how that went for you. Um, but maybe come back to this, this topic of time for a moment. Um, because it seems like I, one of the things I felt in reading the book was that time was your, this different perception of time, more of this geological or astronomical kind of time sense of time almost felt like one of the constants maybe or the, the, the universal relative absolutes that right. you may were look, have been looking for underneath the layers of social construction and, and, and relativism that right. was driving you away. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it, I came to a sense of time that I think was very comforting. Um, I mean, there's just the daily stuff. Of, I, I didn't have a, a watch and there were no clocks in the house because there, there wasn't a microwave and there wasn't a computer and um, there wasn't a cell phone. There wasn't a TV. You know, all the things where you can see see clocks. Yeah, so that's actually a really important point. I, I remember reading that in the book that there was just this absence of any yeah. marker of time other than the, the well, sun. Well, lots of markers of time. Just, They're the, not clock markers. Natural, yeah, exactly. Yeah, natural markers. And there are no social... I mean, I don't wear a watch still, but I, I can tell what time it is mostly by what's happening if I'm in a city by seeing what people are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, or certainly with patterns of people if you if you live in a house or you at the college where I teach, uh, it's pretty easy to know when class is about to start because you see people crossing the quad. and um, So there, there are lots of social markers of time too, but if you take away clock markers and social markers, then yeah, all you have left are the natural markers um, and your own personal habits, your sense of time just based on what your, your routine is. Um, so as you, as you went in through this experience, did you peel back these layers, peel back the social constructions, you, you immerse yourself in nature, really heighten the perception of nature and connection with that. Um, did it feel like you were uncovering something more essential in you? Uh, I guess so. It may not be phrasing the question correctly, but I, I, I stopped. I, I wasn't very self-conscious. 
I mean, as time went on, especially because if you're not seeing yourself reflected, so I, you lose. Well, that, that's what I was trying to get at. It's like in the yeah. sense, in a certain sense, like if you think about the things that stress you out, or if I think about the things that stress me out, it's usually something to do with my relationship to other people, like okay. our, our situations, our dynamics. So imagine if you just if you if you're able to take those things away, right, and have those thoughts and ruminations about those dynamics at abeyance for long enough that there might be this more stable center beneath that. Yeah. 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 That, that's true. And the part of identity that comes from all those interactions, which I think is, is valid. I mean, certainly there's anxiety involved with that, but that, you know, who you are when you interact with other people, I think is, you know, is an important part of identity for sure. But um, I didn't, that part of identity, I, what, like, like you said, was in abeyance. I didn't have to deal with it. Um, and so, and there were no sort of markers. When you walk outside, there's just, every, the way everybody looks at you is a kind of mirror, for better and for worse. Uh, and that was gone too. So when, when you said, was I becoming sort of more aware of a deeper layer of myself? I, I think I, I was, but I wasn't aware that I was becoming aware of it was, it was just the way I was living. Um, well, and that's, and that's sort of what I, you know, I was trying to get teased out too, is cause you're going through this process of a kind of transformation. And sometimes in a process of transformation, you're not conscious of the transformation occurring while it's going, you don't, it only sort of hits you when you maybe reintegrate or get that right. mirror reflection back from others. Right. Um, and you didn't have any mirrors, literal, you, you did not have any literal mirrors in, yeah. but the the Howie that went into the woods did become much thinner. <laughs> right. You lost a significant amount of weight. You also became very grizzly, right? You had a large beard. So, grizzly, and, yeah. and, and you'd have to go into the town every now and then on grocery runs. Right. And so there's these punctuated moments of interaction. And I think there was even a, a random Thanksgiving that you got called home to go to your relative's house or something. And there was this... You in suburbia stumbling around, not stumbling, but doing your slow walking meditation <laughs> and, and attracting the attention of the local authorities uh, because people were calling you in. Right, the police. So, yeah. so in the, like in those experiences, did you get a sense of, okay, what was it like when the, the, the transformation or the juxtaposition of what you had come to in the woods against the reflection you got were getting back? What, what was that like? It was startling. It was really startling because, like you said, I wasn't aware of the change. I think that's how true transformation generally happens. You don't know what's happening while it's happening until something gives you a reflection. And you're just, yeah, I was stunned by how much I had changed. And and it's not even just sort of the social reception I received, (laughs) which is kind of a euphemism for... Or the way the cops treated me, but I mean, well, just well, also your brother wasn't your brother. What was your brother's question for you at the Thanksgiving over the football game? He asked you something well, my like, brother, my cousin, your cousin, asked, yeah, he asked me, What's the takeaway, right? As if there could be a bullet point or two of, yeah, and that goes along with what we were saying before about time. How so much of what I experienced required time, and there's no way to explain that in a question that presupposes sort of the absence of time or a, a, an incredible compression of time. Um, yeah, what I was going to say before that is, is, so it wasn't even just sort of the social response I got. When I would go into the little town close to where I lived to go to the market to get food every two weeks or so if I wasn't snowed in, just hearing the, the radio that was playing on the speakers in the, in the aisles, the pop station, was, 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 kind of, was overwhelming because I hadn't been listening to music. So that, along with all the um, all the products on the shelves and how colorful they were, and just how um, fantastical, for instance, the cereal boxes are, the colors on the cereal boxes and all the animals. If you look at sugar cereals, all the animals, all the crazy uh, cartoon animals. Which I mean, now I, I can go and I go into a market. I don't pay much attention to it, but at the time, coming from only looking at the birds and the trees, and the snails, and the snow, to walk into a, a market, having not heard any music, and suddenly to hear Elton John singing Rocket Man, and to walk down an aisle where you see the, the rabbit on the tricks, and the, 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 I mean, the tiger on Frosted Flakes, and all these, these old sort of jingles or old thing, 
frosted foot flakes. They're great. And you look at tricks and the, the rat. I mean, all these things sort of pop are way back in my memory and they're yeah. coming up. Uh, and it was really, it's bizarre. It's like, oh, wow, the, the, the daily world that we live in that we take to be so normal and dull even, you know, what's more dull than a supermarket aisle, uh, is actually, if you haven't seen it for a while or you're attuned to it, is really fantastical. The analogy that's coming to my mind is that if we took myself or you now in normal life and brought us onto center stage at a show in Las Vegas and said, this is your, this is your new life. Yeah. That, that kind of sensory overload. Sensory overload. And just how dazzling, how everything, all that stuff is vying against the other stuff in the supermarket or the other stuff on the radio for your attention. So, so there's an attention war and there's escalation. And now, you know, if you've sort of tuned out and your existence in the woods is whatever, I don't know, 15th century or something, and then you, you're just sort of jumped into the 20th or 21st century and you walk down a supermarket aisle, it is, it's, it's bizarre. So that was one level. And then, yeah, going to the town where my cousins lived and going for a walk and being stopped by the cops, not just one cop car, but two cop cars, because some woman looking out the window saw me just wandering through the neighborhood looking at the trees. And This doesn't happen just, anymore in Chicago for you, does it? I have not been stopped by the police yet in Chicago, but... I mean, that actually raises another point, too. I mean, it's sort of a joke, but it did occur to me after that. This goes with social constructions also that, you know, eventually I was able to talk my way out of it with the cops by citing family in this town and et cetera. But I did have to wonder afterward, you know, if I'd been black uh, or if my skin, if I'd been, my skin had been dark, you know, in any way, or if they thought I was gay or if sort of all the, all the social constructions that would have changed how they thought about me mm-hmm. uh, and sort of what, what would have happened, you know, how quickly that could have escalated. Um, so that was, yeah, that was sad. It just felt like a sad uh, encounter. Yeah. It was, it was painful for me. I mean, I've, the closest thing I can come to what you did was I go on these very short term silent meditation retreats first, which to normal people sounds like a long time, seven to nine days or a month or something like that. Um, but after reading your book, I realized the meditation retreats... Which to normal people? Well, to, <laughs> to, to normal people that haven't done these things. No, have never gone to that much time. Yeah, no, not to be too, um, too general here. But um, they, people are intimidated by going away and just being silent for seven, nine days. They, they think that's a very terrifying prospect. Um, but I realized that after, while reading your book that you know, what I do on these meditation retreats or what people do on these retreats is really sort of like literally club med style <laughs> solitude. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the food's cooked for you. There's a schedule. You don't have to think too much about what the next thing to do is. You know, you're not, you're not in that stripped down form where the, well, there's yeah. nothing. I, mean, I, no, I haven't experienced it that way, but my bet is that you, with those retreats, you do get a you sort of go into a similar zone. You, you taste, you know, you sort of feel what it would, what it's like to not speak and to be in solitude and, and how, but, but then you don't, you're not then forced to live, live that way. You know, you sort of feel it and then you go back to your normal life. Oh. You come out of it. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about earlier in our conversation is that, you know, with your walking out in the woods in a way, I mean, this it's a sort of an externally directed form of attention of mm-hmm. sharpening perception of your your environment, and the meditation process, at least in seated meditation, tends to go internal more. You with the eyes closed in most systems, and uh, maybe a similar in, intention of connecting with something more true or essential, or coming to a, a sharper, more accurate perception of things yeah. as your mind pieces together the construction of your reality, or something like that. Um, yeah, they, I mean, there are. I think there are some overlaps, but uh, I was definitely struck by just the the sort of the the length of the, the sense of time in general. Just right. two, two years is just a huge time time commitment, and I, that and that brings me to the, the the thing I wanted to bring up around um, the fact that I've actually met you. We have a mutual friend, and I think it was about six or seven years after you had come back that we connected at, at a concert our friend was giving. And um, 
we ended up hanging out a little bit when you were in, in Boston. And uh, this is sort of the hermit in the bar section of this conversation. <laughs> so I'd never been to a bar with a hermit before. Or a former hermit, sorry. Again, a former hermit. Um, but again, I'd been around like some seasoned meditators, some seasoned meditation teachers who kind of evince a kind of gravitas of presence. And when I was sitting next to you in the bar, I remember really having the sense that kind of a few things were happening where one was, there was, it seemed like there was nothing moving in you. Like sort of one way of describing it where you were there, but your, your mind was not moving off point. It had this sort of, like you locked in and then you were just there. Um, and that was coupled with an also another sense that you were kind of looking, you had this eternal gaze. <laughs> it, was, it was past the, the, the transient moment, like you were looking at cross time in a way. Uh-huh. And um, I have to say, you know, I think you were writing the book when we met. You were in the process of writing it at that time. Um, but rereading or reading the book through the, through the winter in preparation of the conversation here, it, there was something that was imparted of that. There was a, there was a quality of that um, attention, perception, real stillness of presence mm-hmm. that um, kind of soaked into me while I was while I was reading. Um, and so I was one of the things I wanted to ask you about around that was I've only seen you a few times live. You know, <laughs> I only had a few drinks, but. Uh, has this have other people talked about that and have you noticed this is this has this something been a quality in you that's endured or does it come and go do you get stressed now what what is sort of what what is your impact on others like uh, that's a big i know it's a lot of questions probably rolled into one but yeah and it's a hard it's a very hard question for me to answer um you know as a I teach creative writing now. It's something I always have to tell my students this point of view. You need to make sure you're faithful to the character's point of view and your character doesn't try to give someone else's point of view. So I, unless you're third omniscient, but I'm, I'm not omniscient, so I don't know what, how people respond exactly. People have said somewhat similar things. Um, but there, there, was a, there was a friend who said there's, there's a lot. I remember her, just because the way she phrased it struck me. She said it. There's a there's just a lot of space around you, mm. um, and so I, I guess I do I do get that, and I don't. Um, did it, did it always feel that way? Like you mean before I went to the world? Yeah. No, I, so, I don't. So, so the Howie before pre woods versus post woods, there's some more rugged ch- changes that occurred. There's some, yeah, there's some, I mean, I think that was always there. I think the way I paid attention was always, um, I don't know. I mean, I know that for me when I, I never read in the library and the reason I wouldn't read in the library was that because when I read, I would go very far away. I'd become, if the book was good, um, I could, I'd completely forget where I was. Uh, and so to read in public felt very strange. It felt like I was naked in a way, you know, so, so I would only read in my room. So that way, no one would tap me on the shoulder and I would have to look up. You know. you. Yeah. It would be like, uh, I get the bends, you know, it'd be like coming up from, from very deep too, too quickly. So I don't So I guess my attention was always something that was fairly strong, but, um, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know if I had, I guess, I guess everybody has this. It's sort of like, what's your, it has to do with, I guess, your orientation or your perspective. It's like, if you have a, if you're walking around with a daily map, um, sort of how far does it extend? And and maybe that also has to do with sort of a a map of time as well. Are you only thinking about the moment itself? uh, Or are you aware of, you know, you or sort of, I guess if people have anxiety, they're only thinking about, something that's five minutes ahead or 20 minutes ahead or a week ahead or, and they're not really inhabiting where they are and there's no sense of the past. Um, and if you're able to, and when you feel calm and not so stressed, maybe your, your the sense of time, the map of time that you carry with you is more expansive. You're, you're able to be in the present, but you're also aware 
future, there will be things that will come and you're aware of stuff from your past. And, um, you know, time sits a lot more lightly on you and it's a fuller version of time. And I, and I think that, uh, maybe I'm not explaining this that clearly, but the, the, the sense of time that I carry with me and maybe a place too, but especially of time is more expansive than it, than it was before I went into the woods, I think. Mm. So with that comes, yeah, I guess a sense of calm or, you know, what people perceive as a sense of calm or space or stillness or, you know, something along those lines. But I mean, I'm guessing it, it probably had like it probably weakened it. It goes through weaker phases. I mean, you, do, do you get stressed now? Do you get ag- agitated? Yeah, yeah, sure. There are times where I feel the way I feel it is, uh, I, I guess the way I think of it, the way I feel, I feel myself going fast or faster than I like to go. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's if there's something I have to get done or um, there's something that I'm, um, I'm waiting to hear back from someone or, you know, th- something like that. And I can feel myself going a little faster. I'm thinking a little faster um, and not in a pleasant way. You know, it's, it's sort of the speed of anxiety rather than speed of acuity and uh, yeah, so that, that does happen. And there, yeah, I still speed up and slow down like everybody. I think the difference is that I'm more attuned to it than I used to be. So now if I start going past sort of the, my internal, like my little internal dashboard, the light will go on a lot quicker. Uh-huh. It'll show, oh, you're going a little too fast. You know, you might be getting into the red zone. And then what I do with it, you know, then I, sometimes I still go fast because it's like, oh, what I need to get this done or I need, and other times... I realize, oh, I just don't feel very good if I'm sped up like that. And then I go for a walk or, you know, do something to just kind of bring myself back to a, a pace that feels more comfortable. So you sort of had, I mean, not to simplify it too much, but it sounds like there's this, there was this dramatic internal reset. of The default for what feels normal to you now is a, is a much slower time scale um, and... Uh, a quieter pace of things. Right. No, that, um, yeah, that's it. And so, but I'm also curious about what have you retained in terms of external structures that reinforce your ability to maintain that? Like, like you mentioned not having a watch. Right. Um, and, okay. So, and, so. and before we get to the, the next thing though, um, you know, just viewers should know, listeners should know that, this is probably the first meaning of life TV conversation where I had to contact the treasurer at meaning of life TV to get a special allowance to mail an old laptop to you, which <laughs> over exaggerates the hand. I mean, you, you, you had a laptop. We had some technical issues where the laptop you had was creating a buzzing sound that you couldn't detect. Yeah, that's but, right. 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 My laptop was was built in 1852 <laughs> so, the fan had ball bearings that were just really r- rattling around a lot my, my yes and you sent me yeah so i but sent I, you a laptop I, I carrier pigeon yeah and, and here here we are brilliant um but, but, no, but the way you the way you phrase that is actually right i mean i did i re i guess to go with computer metaphor too, I, I reset my default settings and that's something that's I think that's very hard to do. And then and then your next question is sort of what in my daily life reinforces that yes. reset. Um, and I, I go for a walk uh, every morning when I, I make sure not you know the first thing I do after I wake up and use the bathroom or get a drink of water is to go for a walk rather than check the internet, um, check news or. Because I do feel as though, especially whatever you, whatever you do first thing in the morning, to some way sets the frame, for, for sets the frame for your day. Um, and I want the first information I get about the day to come from the day, not, not from whatever Google. So, so I, I, I take a walk. Um, I don't have a smartphone. Um, I think that, I, I, and I don't have, I don't wear a watch. Do you have a cell phone? I don't have a cell phone. So no, I, have, I have a landline. Stop traffic for one minute. <laughs> you may, I mean, again, you, this is a first for a lot of things. 
you, you may be the only person I know of, and maybe the only person many people have even heard of that doesn't have a cell phone. So that yeah. begs the question, how do you survive? Well, I survived the same way people survived before cell phones existed. I eat and I breathe. And I, I mean, it's, survival is not all that hard without a cell phone. Um, oh, I know. And, you know, I mean, this is, gonna, this is becoming an issue that you're hearing more about in the media. And I, apparently Nokia, I don't know if you heard this, but Nokia is rolling out one of their old retro phones. Oh, I did hear that. Yeah, so people don't have to have... Uh, quite the connectivity yeah i mean I, I think the question about how do you survive is the question that people ask but of course it overstates i mean what it what it what it really states is our dependence right on, and, and our and our defaults our assumption that this is what you need but there is a kind of social for sure if everybody has this and you don't socially how do you survive and it and it the question comes up i mean people because the way we act is different now so now, if you if you plan to meet someone at six thirty for whatever for a drink, uh, that's that's a lot more provisional than it used to be. It's you know it's like roughly six thirty. Then you're going to text each other and then figure, well, I'm here, I'm late, and and so yeah, what happens with people when I say when they say six thirty, and I say, but I don't. Yeah, do you sit there at the bar twiddling your thumbs, waiting? Yeah, well, that that's the thing. It's because so I'm on time. You know, if someone says six thirty, I'll I'll get there at six thirty usually, uh, and. And actually, my sense of time is, this may sound, I don't know, contradictory, but my sense of time is pretty good, I think, in part because I don't have a watch. So just by the way the light is or by what's happening, I, I, I generally know what time it is within 15 minutes of the mm-hmm. time. Um, so I'm, I'm usually on time. But, but So people, but then other people, it's not, it's not that I'm going to keep them waiting, but then they feel bad. They want to be able to text me to say I'm going to be late. And I have to say, I don't mind... Yeah, I don't mind sitting for 20 minutes at a bar just looking around, drinking my drink, doing, you know, just paying attention. And that's very hard for people to, a lot of, I mean, my close friends get it now, but a lot of people think, oh, but that's just terrible if you have to sit there for 20, and you don't even have a phone. What are you going to do for 20 minutes? And it's like, I actually love that time because there's nothing I can be doing. There's nothing I need to be doing. I'm just, just sitting there enjoying whatever I've ordered or looking around. Yeah, so that, it's making me think we are of the generation, though, where we're sort of, we are on the cusp. We, rem- I mean, we remember what it was like before the invasion. You're making me feel very old. Yeah, we do. We, yeah, I didn't have email in college. Senior year, people started to have email, and I didn't get it. But, every, yeah, people, that was, um, so, yeah, survival without a phone is fairly easy. And, and the reason I don't have one, it's not some kind of statement or... Uh, it's just that I don't, um, the way I think of it is like an, is, is, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. It's like an airport, like being in an airport where, where it's, it's really exciting, especially when I was a kid, it was really exciting to go to the airport cause you'd see all the, all the, all the flights from here. You can go to San Juan here. You can go to Miami here. You can go to Istanbul here. and, and it, it drew all of those places closer. Um, but also when you're in an airport, you're not, you're sort of, you're, you're, everything is potential. You can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that feeling, but I also wouldn't want to live in that. I wouldn't want to live in an airport because then when you're in an airport, you're not really anywhere. It doesn't feel like you're anywhere. And it feels to me like if I had a phone, it would feel like living in that airport. Like everything would be brought closer. I could learn about this. I could look at this. I could watch that movie. I could, but I wouldn't actually be where I was, where I was as I was walking down the street. Uh, and so that's that. That's what I don't have. One. Reminds me of this line that I had scribbled down from Thoreau. Of, um, <clears throat> he says, "I had walked into the woods bodily without getting there in spirit." You know, and you know, yeah. I think we're there bodily, but nobody's home. And and that's what was another question I had. When you look at everybody around you now, I mean, I, I have this reflection a lot, but I look around and everybody with the odd exception, is craned over a cell phone or a smartphone. Um, what do you reflect on when you see that? Well, I don't, I don't really know what, you, you know, each person who's looking at their cell phone is, again, it's a point of view thing. I, I wouldn't presume to know what they're 
I mean, one person who's looking at her phone could be looking at a text from her best friend who's in the hospital. You know, like it could be a very profound kind of connection that that person's having. Mm -hmm. While the person next to her might just be checking out the latest about Beyonce or something. I mean, you know, there's no way to know what people are looking at or feeling when they're on their phones. But I... um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm commenting more on the on the on the ubiquity of that form of interaction now. Yeah, well, I do think it's really important to question, and this is the book that I'm working on now. Um, everything that influences uh, our sort of the lenses for our inner eye, everything that shapes how we look at the world, that shapes our perceptions, that shapes how and what we think, and every intellectual technology does that. Um, going back to maps mm-hmm. uh, and just the invention of writing. And, I mean, so basically the his, you know, our, our intellectual and really our cultural history is the history of, of our technologies and especially our intellectual technologies. Um, and now we've got the most powerful intel- intellectual technology we've ever had uh, with, with smartphones and sort of digital connectivity. So it seems really important to me to ask these questions. How is this stuff changing our sense of space and, and a place, especially, not just space, but place. How does it change our sense of time? How does it change our sense of identity? How does it change our sense of memory? How does it change um, just our senses, the way we perceive? So, you know, basically all the stuff that I encountered when I lived in the woods, the way my inner eye changed, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now looking at the way digital technology, and it's really smartphones, um, the impact they're, they're having. And I, I think it's just a question of, well, it's going to, this stuff is going to enhance certain parts of our inner lives. It's going to make us uh, better able to do certain things. And of course it's going to diminish other parts of our lives and make other things harder for us to do. And, and I just, I'm just trying to examine what those things are. Cause I, I think there, you know, there can be an assumption, especially with me, cause I, I, you know, I'm with this former hermit and I don't have a cell phone and that, Oh, you know, the, the response is going to be that this stuff is bad for us or it's somehow, unnatural or whatever. And I'm not entirely convinced. I mean, I, I do think there's a, a lot of stuff about digital technology that's really, I mean, look at, you know, we're having this interview yeah. now. Uh, and so I'm just, I'm just trying to look at it slowly, the way I look at everything and understand, you know, to develop, I mean, on the one hand, really like a, a metaphysics of digital life. How is this changing the way we orient in the world? And on the other hand, to do it in a way that's really practical, like what happens on a daily basis, if you're always looking at your GPS to get places, what does that do to your sense of, of place? Space, yeah. yeah. Well, the issue seems, I mean, not so much the technology itself being positive or negative. It's just that it's a very, it, there's an addictive quality to the technology and then it's hard to regulate, self-regulate. Um, yeah. And you see these, these, I mean, the irony is there's more and more apps out there on how to bl- shut down and block and make utterly right. useless your, your smartphone for periods yeah. of time so you can actually... Yeah, which are funny. Yeah. But it is, I mean, it's also, right, it's how addictive this stuff is, but that really it structures our awareness. It structures the way we communicate. It structures the way we receive news. For, I mean, this stuff had a huge impact on the presidential election. Mm-hmm. It structures the way we talk about things. Um, and that's all of that's really important because then it's not just a question of what's the content, you know, are you reading this story? Are you reading that story? It's a question of how the, how the structures are changing, how we think. Um, and that's, you know, it's harder to look at that, but it's, it's very important to consider, I think. Hmm. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, (laughs) speaking of time. Um, and thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been really a pleasure talking to you about all of these things. Just want to give a shout out again, the point of vanishing. Um, it's the best thing I've read in 2017. Actually, the best thing I read in 2016 and 2017. It's a, I, I read it cause I had to for, for our conversation, but I enjoyed every second of it and it was a phenomenal read, beautifully written. Um, where can they get that on Amazon? Sure, it can get it anywhere. Um, I guess indie. I think IndieBound is the is the is the site to get it through independent bookstores. They can get it through Amazon. I'm not. I don't. I'm not a huge advocate of Amazon for lots of reasons. But if someone is a fan of Amazon, they can get it through them. You can go to your local independent bookstore. 
um, and have and buy it there or have them order it. Those I think those are the those are the best ways. My my parents. This is maybe off top, but my parents happened to have just been in New Zealand and they went into an independent bookstore in New Zealand and it was there, wow. which made them very very proud. very proud. Very proud. So if you live in New Zealand, you can go to your independent bookstore. Yeah, I, I'd say go to your independent bookstore. That's that's the best way to get it. And when's the next book out? Well, we'll see. I have to. Does have it have to, a title yet? A working title? Um, is that like name revealing the name of a baby before it's, it's born? Yeah, it does have a title, but I don't want to okay. share it. Can I just plug? Can there be a, a chapter in there on how, how to live without a cell phone? I know I've asked you that before, but if you could uh, a short manifesto on how to live without a cell phone, I think it could go viral. Okay. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> All right, Howie. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you, Justin. Great talking to you. Take care. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I, um, as I've been thinking about it, I'm gearing up, I think, for my third read of The Point of Vanishing. It's a book I've read twice already. And I failed to say this in the intro, but I should say this is this is a modern version of Walden. Howie is a kind of contemporary Thoreau for our own modern day. And uh, I just think it if you've ever fantasized about living in the woods for a while or being in a remote solitude or going to a monastic scenario for a while, period of time and, and going deep into your own being and the experience of solitude, his memoir is really a great vicarious glimpse into what that experience is like and it really gives you a feeling for for it in your own experience you, you like I, as i said it, it it shaped and changed the way i experienced walking in the world as i was reading the book so do check that out there's a link for you in the show notes for the point of vanishing and if you do get a copy and you enjoy it please consider checking out uh howie's engagements with our sangha those 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 engagements will be announced as soon as the dates are set but uh, keep keep an ear on ear open for for when those get published and, and get announced until then or until the next time i want to thank you for your attention here thank you for your practice i hope you're safe be well and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode take good care